Remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text. Another one verse text from Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Again, Father, we thank you for your word, which is truth that we can stand on and truth that sanctifies us. Sanctify us by your truth, even in this hour. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. I remind you that we are in the midst of a eight-sermon series on the Beatitudes from Matthew 5. There are eight Beatitudes, so we're going to spend eight weeks talking about them, and these correspond with our eight weeks of small groups. We'll be meeting eight times over the course of this fall, if you're in a small group, to talk about each one of these Beatitudes each week. In Psalm 55, after passionately describing the disappointments and bitterness of this life, David cries out in verses 6 to 8, Oh, that I had the wings of a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. I would flee far away and stay in the desert. I would hurry to my place of shelter far from the tempest and storm. In these words, David voices a wish that is as ancient as fallen humanity. And this wish will endure as long as men, as men live on this earth. It is a cry for freedom, for life on wings. Everyone longs, in a sense, to fly away, to find rest from the futility and the frustration and the groaning and the suffering of life in this fallen world. We yearn for comfort. In a life of bitterness, corruption, disappointments, and trials. Like David, we dream of flying away and being at rest. We ache for deep comfort. We long for life on wings. All men know the longing of, the longing for freedom and comfort. Sometimes intensely. But, not all men find the solution. Every man longs for this kind of freedom and comfort, but not every man finds the solution. David did find it though. Later in Psalm 55, that same psalm, he writes, I call to you, God, I call to God, rather, and the Lord saves me. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress. And he hears my voice. David's solution was God. God gave him joy. And in his joy, David recommended trusting God to others. Later in that psalm, Psalm 55, he writes again, Cast your cares on the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. David found that the way you find freedom in the midst of life's sorrow is by flying to God. 
David would have agreed with Isaiah in Isaiah 40, 31. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So there's a sort of not growing weary in the midst of our weariness. That's the paradox of being a believer and trusting in God. The second beatitude in Matthew 5.4 speaks of the happiness of those whom God comforts. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they, they shall be comforted. They alone, too, shall be comforted. And there is no comfort to compare with the comfort given to a man by God. All other forms of comfort are second rate, temporary. The unusual thing about this statement, though, is that Jesus links the comforting, the comfort of God, the comforting that we need and will get from God, he links it to what? To mourning, to intense sorrow. That's what that word refers to. Jesus seems to say that the way to a jubilant heart is through tears. Everything in the world... Everything in the natural man opposes this principle. The world says, let's eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The world says, don't worry, be happy. Like that popular song from 1988. But Jesus says that happiness comes by way of sorrow. And the parallel passage in Luke 6 makes his makes his words even sharper, or he says it in a more, sh- more sharply there. In Luke 6, 21, Jesus says, Blessed are you who mourn and weep now, for you shall laugh. Jesus condemns the superficial laughter and happiness of the world by pronouncing a woe on it there in Luke 6. In Luke six twenty five, he says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. See, there in Luke 6, Jesus condemns those who laugh in this life. They'll be the ones mourning and weeping in the life to come. But Jesus promises deep happiness to those who weep and mourn in this life. They'll be the ones laughing in the life to come. Blessed are those who mourn. So what does this paradoxical statement mean? Happy are those who are unhappy in a sense. Well, let's, let's first note what it does not mean. Jesus does not mean blessed are grim, cheerless, pitiful, miserable, morose Christians. Christ is not pronouncing a blessing on a forlorn disposition. He's not promising to comfort the perpetually despondent. The second beatitude doesn't say blessed are the sad and depressed. There's no virtue in living in despair. God does not bless those 
who mourn aimlessly. God only comforts those who mourn with a godly purpose. Jesus also does not mean blessed are those who mourn over the difficulties of life. The Bible does not say that mourning by itself is a blessed state. Sorrow is not automatically good any more than laughter is automatically good. They're both good at the proper time. In fact, some mourning is quite bad. In 2 Samuel 13.2, Amnon mourned because his lust was not fulfilled by Tamar, his half-sister. In 1 Kings 21.4, Ahab mourned because he wanted Naboth's vineyard, but couldn't get it. God doesn't comfort that kind of a mourner. So we've seen that God doesn't bless just any mourning. We have to qualify this. He doesn't comfort aimless mourners. He doesn't bless mourning just over the difficulties of life. Anybody can do that. In fact, virtually everybody does that, right? God doesn't comfort those who mourn over not getting what they want. So what kind of mourning does God comfort? Blessed are those who mourn over what? Jesus doesn't tell us explicitly, but we don't have to guess. It's not unclear. We can use the context. We can use the rest of the Bible. We can use the parallel passage in Luke 6. And we can use sound theological deduction to figure out what kind of mourning Jesus has in mind. And we can, ar- we can start by asking this question. Or these questions. What is the most biblical thing to mourn about? Think about that. What's the most biblical thing to mourn about? According to Scripture, what is the most important thing for you to mourn over? What is, here's, here's another way of asking it. What is most worthy of our sorrow and our mourning? Or, or maybe a better way yet to ask the question, if you were only going to mourn over one thing, what should it be? You're only allowed to mourn over one thing. You've got to go figure out what that is. What's it going to be? What are you going to mourn over? Well, I hope that you have discovered the answer by now. The answer is sin. Your sin. Jesus wept twice in His ministry. Once for the unbelief of the Jews at the grave of Lazarus. He wasn't mourning His death. He knew He was getting ready to to raise Him from the dead. And once over the sin and hardness and heart of Jerusalem. That's why Jesus wept. He, He, of course, would have wept for other things that are not recorded. But the Holy Spirit told us about these two. Sin, you see, is mankind's problem. And Jesus asks men and women and boys and girls to weep over it. To mourn about it. To to cultivate a mourning and a weeping over sin. Over sin and sins. 
So the morning of this beatitude, or at least, the, I should say the meaning of this beatitude, or at least its primary meaning, has to do with mourning over sin. Blessed are those who mourn over their sins, for they shall be comforted. The promise here is that God will comfort those who understand and express their unworthiness before Him. And of course, this is a fundamental truth in the rest of Scripture as well. The promise is that God will respond to those who mourn over their sins the way the father responded to the prodigal son when he mourned over his sins and confessed his unworthiness to his father. You remember that story. We get a picture of this beatitude in that parable of the prodigal son. Listen as I read Luke 15, verses 16 to 23 about that parable, about that son. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, when he woke up, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Those who mourn over their sins shall be blessed and comforted by God. Do you mourn over your sins the way the prodigal son did? Do you lament your wretchedness the way Paul did In Romans 7, verses 21 to 24, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me From this body of death. This is Paul the Apostle. Mourning over his sinfulness. The indwelling sin. This is the kind of mourning. That God blesses and comforts. We saw last week. That the promise of happiness. To the poor in spirit. Is actually a promise. To those who know that they are spiritually bankrupt. The first beatitude is about knowing, we could say intellectually, in your mind primarily, how sinful you are. But it doesn't just stop with knowing. The second beatitude is about acknowledging and expressing to God how sinful you are, how wretched you are, how unworthy you are to be His Son. Now, There's no virtue in doubting that you are a son of God. That's just a lack of faith. But there is a virtue in acknowledging and confessing 
that it's not your worthiness that has made you a son. You see, the second beatitude flows from the first. We discussed last week that there's a logic to these beatitudes. The first one opens up the beatitudes for a reason. It's about emptying ourselves so that we can be filled with other with, with good things from God and His Spirit. You can't properly mourn over your sinfulness if you aren't aware, properly aware of it. So the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, is primarily intellectual, to put it a little bit crudely. Those who understand their spiritual poverty are blessed. The second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, is its emotional counterpart. It naturally follows that when we see ourselves for who we are, what we are, our emotions will be stirred to mourning, grieving, sorrow that leads to repentance, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 7. Those who mourn over their spiritual corruption are blessed. As with the first beatitude, we can't stress enough the importance of the second beatitude as it relates to the gospel. The beatitudes do not explicitly explain Christ's atoning death and resurrection. They they don't describe how to receive Jesus for salvation. But they do describe what it looks like to be saved. They describe what people what men and women and boys and girls look like when they are walking with Christ on their way to heaven. If you read the second beatitude apart from its context, it's almost startling. Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's a paradox, and it's meant to grab us. G.K. Chesterton defined a paradox as truth standing on its head, calling attention. And that's the case here. Jesus states one of life's essential truths in such a way that it cries for all to come and take a good look at it. Happy are those who mourn. It's almost as if Jesus said, happy are those who are unhappy. The world cannot understand how mourning can lead to deep Joy, deep satisfaction in God. But we can, we can imagine it. We know that the gospel from beginning to end is upside down. It's counterintuitive. goes against the grain of the natural man and the world. We who are filled with the Spirit of Christ know the comfort and blessed state that results from being honest with God about the depths of our depravity and corruption. Is this something that you know? Is this something that you are growing in your knowledge of? Do you experience the blessing and comfort of mourning over your sins before God in His presence? Is that something you're cultivating in your life, in your walk with the Lord? We have to be intentional about this because mourning is not popular. Despite its necessity for spiritual health, mourning is not in vogue. 
Much of our culture has overdosed on amusement to the point that we don't even know how to mourn at all and we try to avoid it at all cost. You see this especially when you go to a funeral or maybe a visitation, a wake, and the people involved are looking for any way to avoid grieving. Any kind of superficial conversation will do. Modern people are allergic to mourning. We'd rather find something superficial to laugh at, to entertain us, to distract us. This mindset creates a shallow humanity and a shallow church. True Christianity manifests itself in what we cry over and in what we laugh about. So often we laugh at the things that we should be weeping over. And we weep over the things that we should be laughing at. Why do you weep? What causes you to weep? What do you laugh at? What gives you laughter? Those are important questions to ask. When it comes to spiritual life and health, mourning is not optional. Spiritual mourning is necessary for salvation. I'm not saying that spiritual mourning is how we earn salvation. I'm simply saying that salvation never comes to men and women who know nothing of spiritual mourning. Put it even more strongly, no man or woman is truly a Christian who has not mourned over his or her sins. You cannot be forgiven if you're not sorry for your sins. Sorry with a sorrow that leads to repentance, that produces repentance unto salvation. Second Corinthians 7 10. In 1983, there were two congressmen in the House of Representatives who each committed a reprehensible sin. Each congressman's sin was also a crime. Both congressmen were men. One was named Crane, that was his last name, and the other's last name was Studs. The sin and crime of Crane was that he had sexual relations with a 17-year-old female page. The sin and crime of Studs was that he had sexual relations with a 17-year-old Male page. Both of these men were censured by the House of Representatives on the same day. On the same day, the House publicly dis- disapproved of each man's sexual misconduct. But the responses of these two men were quite different from each other. In fact, they were opposite of each other. Congressman Crane, the man who had relations with the 17-year-old girl, admitted tearfully to his district and to the House of Representatives that he, quote, broke the laws of God and man. And he supported the House of Representatives in censuring him for his sin and crime. 
Congressman Studs, on the other hand, the man who had relations with the 17-year-old boy, was not at all repentant. In a dramatic speech to the House of Representatives, he admitted with no tears that he was gay and he defended the relationship with the boy as, quote, mutual involuntary. He told everyone that he had done nothing wrong. And he did not support the House of Representatives in censuring him for his sin, for his misconduct. Here's how one news reporter commented on this event. He said, there is one thing worse than sin. This was his conclusion. There's one thing worse than sin. That is, denial of sin, which makes forgiveness impossible. One of these men was in a position to be forgiven. The man who actually mourned over his sin. I don't know the rest of the story, whether his sorrow produced godly repentance and life and salvation. But he did humble himself and confess his sin and mourn over his sin, making forgiveness possible. The other man, the man who justified his sin and even celebrated it, made forgiveness impossible. The saddest thing in life is not a sad or sorrowful heart. The saddest thing in life is a heart that is incapable of grief over sin. Grace is absent from such a heart. Without poorness of spirit, no one enters the kingdom of God. And without its emotional counterpart, grief over sin, no one receives the comfort of forgiveness and salvation. Another way of putting this is that when God comes to us and saves us in His grace, apart from anything that we do, the first thing He does is He gives us a sorrow for our sins, a contrition for our sins. God will not despise that kind of a heart. That heart can receive God's forgiveness. If you've never sorrowed over the sin in your life, if you've never expressed sorrow for not just the consequences of your sin, but the sin itself, its offense against God, then consider long and carefully whether you know God, whether you know Christ. Genuine believers, those who are born of God, have mourned and they continue to mourn over their sins. For Christians, mourning over sin is essential to spiritual health. The, the verb here emphasizes ongoing, continuous mourning. It emphasizes that ongoing aspect of our mourning. Blessed are those who continue to mourn over their sins, for they shall be comforted. Godly believers perpetually mourn, which means they perpetually confess and repent of sins. It's significant that the first 
of Martin Luther's 95 Theses states that the entire life is to be one of continuous repentance and contrition. So when Martin Luther kicked off the Reformation with his 95 Theses, the the very first one of those 95, the most important one, was that the Christian is called by God to live a life of continual, constant, continuous repentance and contrition. What is the result of our mourning? In the first beatitude, we saw that an, on, that an ongoing poverty of spirit leaves us open to the blessings of the kingdom. In the second beatitude, our ongoing mourning opens us to God's unspeakable comfort and joy. You see, the promise of that second beatitude is comfort. Comfort to those who sense their sin and mourn over it. But, but what does it mean to be comforted? What kind of comfort are we talking about here? Why do we need God's comfort? What does God comfort us about? In relation to what? In short, God comforts us about the consequences of our sin. Sin has devastated us. But God's grace restores and comforts us in its restoration. And those who mourn over their sins get to encounter the comfort of God's grace in Christ Jesus. There are three dimensions we can talk about. Three dimensions to our experience of God's comfort. First, we experience the comfort of being delivered from sin's penalty. Second, we experience the comfort of being delivered from sin's power. Third, we will one day experience the comfort of being delivered from sin's presence. That one doesn't come in this life, only in the life to come. So in closing, let's look at each one of these in turn. First, sin's penalty. Those who mourn over their sins experience the comfort of being delivered from sin's penalty. This means that their sins against God have been forgiven, taken care of, dealt with. Above all, the basis of our comfort is the forgiveness of our sins. Is there a greater comfort to be had? Can you imagine any blessing that is better than the forgiveness of every single one of your sins? No way. No way. Believers are the only people in the world who are free and absolutely free from the guilt of their sins. The condemning guilt of their sins. Let that sink in. Let that blessing sink in so that it gives you the comfort that it ought. The sensitive soul, we could say the soul that's in tune with God's Spirit, will grieve for his sins and see his sin as the great offense against God that it is. 
This is what happens when the Spirit convicts a person of sin. But that person should also experience the comfort that God has provided through the cross of Jesus Christ. See, this comfort is at its core about the Gospel. The comfort that we have, that we receive, that is ours in Christ, through the cross. The Bible tells us that we are dead in trespasses and sins. We're conceived dead. We earned nothing from God except His eternal anger and wrath. But mysteriously, inexplicably, God loved us in spite of our sin, and that love drove Him to send Jesus his Son, to step between us and His wrath. He made that decision while we were still enemies. Before we were in Christ. He made that decision to love us. He loved us so much that He sent Jesus to take our wrath. Christ took the blow of God's wrath upon Himself, paying the full penalty for our sin so that we could have the most important comfort of all. God has counted the full righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ to our account. The blood of Christ has washed away all our guilt. It has satisfied God's wrath. And Paul says in Ephesians 1, 6, that we are now accepted in the Beloved. The Beloved is Jesus. We are forgiven only because we are united to God's Beloved Son by the faith that He's given us. And that faith that He gives us includes recognizing that you're poor in spirit and mourning over your sin. There is unspeakable joy in having your sins forgiven by God. Whether you realize it or not, whether you recognize it or fully experience it subjectively, there is unspeakable joy that is yours because you've been forgiven of all your sins by God. This is the joy, this is the heart of the joy that was foretold by the angels on the evening of Christ's birth. In Luke 2, the angels told the shepherds, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news, good tidings of great joy that will be for all the people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, one who saves, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Matthew 1 reminds us that this Savior, who's named Jesus, came to save His people from their sins. The penalty of your sins is what put Jesus on the cross. That's why He came. And the penalty of your sins was put on the cross, was put on Christ while He was on the cross. Trust in Him. Receive the forgiveness that He freely offers. Rejoice in this good news. And be comforted. Be comforted. Second, sin's power. Those who mourn over their sins experience the comfort of being delivered 
from sin's power. If you're a Christian, Christ lives in you and through you, through his Holy Spirit. You are connected to Jesus through the Spirit. And your union with Jesus through the Spirit enables you to live a victorious, triumphant life over sin. There are many who believe that there is no victory over sin in this life. I've counseled many people who either explicitly say that or implicitly believe it. And there are many teachers even who teach it, preachers who preach it. But there are few things that are more harmful, more destructive to your spiritual health than thinking that you have no victory, that you can have no victory over your sin, over the power of sin. Now it's true that sin will always be with us in this life. It'll never be completely gone. It's, it'll be lingering until the day you die. John 1.8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if you claim to be without still a sinful tendency and actual sins that come out of that ten, sinful inclination that still dwells inside of you, then, then you're a liar if you claim to not have that. You're, you have sin and you're going to sin. This is true. So, so let's not forget that or minimize that. Sin will always be with the Christian so long as he lives. But it's not true that the Christian must be defeated by sin. Paul in Galatians says, Live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 Paul then goes on to describe some of the sins we will not gratify if we walk in the Spirit. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. According to Galatians, the Christian is supposed to have victory over these things in the Spirit. So we have to reconcile what Paul says in Romans 7. Remember I read that early about that war, that inner battle with sin. That's always going to be there. We have to reconcile that with what he says here. That we can have victory. That we can walk in the Spirit. There's no reason not to. There's no excuse not to. The presence of our sin, the presence of sin in our lives is like the presence of carbon monoxide in the exhaust system of an automobile. As long as the car is running, that deadly gas will be present. It'll be coming out. If the exhaust is not channeled and dealt with properly, if it's allowed to come into the cab of the vehicle, it will bring death to the occupants of the car, eventually. But if the car is properly maintained, if the carbon monoxide is contained within the exhaust system properly, 
then it does not cause death to those in the automobile. Only a slight smell is present as it's mixed with other fumes from the car. In the same way, there will always be the smell of sin around us. As long as we're alive on this, in this life, the smell of sin will always be mixed with what we do. But it need not cause death. The restraining power of Christ through the Holy Spirit prevents sin from dominating us. Those who have been bought by the blood of Christ have been delivered not just from sin's penalty, from the punishment that our sin deserves, but also from sin's power. And there's a great comfort in this. There's great comfort in this for the Christian that He has given you victory, deliverance from sin's power. You must believe this. You must know this. Third, sin's presence. Those who mourn over their sins will one day experience the comfort of being delivered from sin's presence. Will will one day experience that full deliverance Not just from sin's penalty and sin's power, but also from sin's presence. One day, Christ will remove sin and all of its effects from the believer, from you, permanently. Forever. You should look forward to that day. You should hate sin so much that you look forward to that day. This will mean an end to pride and covetousness, self-centeredness, hate, suffering, sickness, and death. Sin and all its consequences will be completely gone from us forever. At the moment, we are still aware of our sin, very intimately aware. The smell of it is still all around us. It's inside of us and it keeps coming out of us like the exhaust of a car. But the day is coming when we shall be taken from this world into Christ's presence. And that day there will be no more sin to confess. Because as Hebrews 12 says, our spirits will be made perfect. I love that verse in Hebrews 12 that refers to the the spirits of the righteous spirits of just men, the spirits of Christians, believers, made perfect. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's, that's what's going on. Think about that. The spirits of dead Christians in heaven have been made perfect. The presence of sin is already completely gone for them. At death, the believer will experience for the first time an unmixed good. You've never experienced unmixed good. But then, when our spirits have been made righteous fully, we will experience an unmixed good, a righteousness that is not tainted with unrighteousness at all, a pure heart that is not contaminated by any impurities. That will truly be the life on wings. 
And then we will know. Then we will know in a way that we cannot know now. The blessing and comfort that belongs to those who mourn for their sins. Those who laugh now will be mourning then. But those who weep and mourn now will be able to laugh then. Are you mourning over your sins? Are you weeping now so that you can laugh then? Let's pray and ask for God to help us do this. Father, give us the grace that we need to weep and mourn in a godly way over our sins, in a way that leads to repentance and life and salvation, in a way that, most of all, in a way that glorifies Your name, that brings glory to You, the perfect One, the sinless One. Help us by the power of Your Spirit, in the name of Jesus, Amen.